This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 364, a conversation with J.M. DiMatteis. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 364. It's our conversation with the J.M. DiMatteis episode. Um, so we'll get right into the episode in just a moment as we sat down with J.M. to talk about his uh, amazing career in comics. Uh, we talked about Justice League, uh, Spider-Man, um, a lot of other things in the middle, Moonshadow, his current work, his work in television uh, and animation. So there's a, a lot of really good stuff here. I think you really enjoy it. It's about an hour and a half, hour 45. Um, we're tremendously lucky to get him to you know talk about his career and i just personally as a huge fan of his work it was a lot of fun to be able to ask him questions i've always wanted to ask him i'm sure i'll come up with questions later that i'm going to kick myself i didn't have a chance to ask him but uh it was quite the uh, great conversation i think you're really going to enjoy it uh you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com you can like the show on our facebook page you can rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes you can also listen to us on stitcher Thanks again, and let's jump right into the conversation with J.M. DiMatteis. J.M., welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? I am doing very well, thank you. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join us here at Comic Shenanigans to talk about your pretty amazing career in comics. <laughs> it's been a it's been a long, healthy run. Um, now I used to do the you know the, the patented you know kind of how did you get into comics or how did you start reading comics but what I've actually started doing with my first kind of question is instead asking what's the um, the the comic that you're you're most surprised that someone's brought you to sign like I'm sure you get a lot of Spider Man's Justice Leagues etc but what's the comic that you're like oh I forgot I even did this you know well this kind of ties into the other question anyway when I started out at, at DC which is where I broke in. Uh, in those days, you broke in working for the anthology books, things like Weird War Tales and House of Mystery and House of Secrets and all those those comics that I, I don't know if, who read them. You know, I, I, I have no clue. You know, I didn't even know they existed before I started selling stories to them. That was just the way to get into the business. So I started selling stories to them. And and I, oh, every once in a while, I'll be sitting there at a convention and a copy of Weird War Tales or something will come across my desk. And that always... That always surprises me, A, that anyone even knew those stories existed, and B, that they have them, you know, but they've <laughs> actually saved them all these years. Uh, what is the most common thing that you end up signing? It's kind of the flip of that. Uh, I'd say uh, it's like a third Craven's Last Hunt, a third uh, Justice League International, but I would probably uh, fold in everything I've done with Keith over the years, but a lot, a lot of the Justice League, and, and this is, I've seen this consistently, not just in the United States, but around the world. Oh, and wow. then a third of everything else. But what's interesting with my career is that, you know, there are different people that know me for different things. Like some people just, you know, they're, they're big fans of the stuff that I do with Keith, and that's what they know. Other people know my superhero work. There are other people that they'll come up with Moonshadow or Blood or Brooklyn Dreams and, and my creator own work, and they have never read the other stuff. So it's, uh, it's interesting because it's been a very diverse career. Mm-hmm. So, so, and, and, and I know that people like to pigeonhole you. And I've tried, it didn't start out consciously, but then once I became aware of what I was doing, it was very clear. I didn't, I never want to be pigeonholed. And you really can't because if you look at Moonshadow, then you jump to Justice League International, then you go to Brooklyn Dreams, and you go to the kid friendly stuff like Abadazad or the Stardust Kid. Um, it's been all over the map. And that's kind of what's kept me sane and has kept me creative, creatively growing all these years as well now uh, your your current work you're working on Justice League 3001 we're just wrapping that up yeah, it's got a couple more issues and then that, that one unfortunately is going away we've had a 
a great run and a fantastic time with uh, with this this series. First, it was Justice League 3000, and then we've done Justice League 3001. And uh, I'm, that's one I'm really sorry to, to see it go, because it's uh, some of the most fun Keith and I have, have had working together. And we've been lucky enough to have guys like Howard Porter and Scott Collins uh, uh, working on the book. Uh, but uh, it's the nature of the beast, especially in this market, that, that we've lasted, whatever it is, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. is actually an amazing thing in this market, because really, it seems like these days, if you're not one of the, the major mainstream characters, you know, if you watch the sales charts, everything just sort of comes out and then it takes a couple of years and it kind of sputters and off it goes and you're on to the next one but that's just the nature of the beast but it's been a great run so keith and i have with howard porter have jumped over to uh scooby apocalypse which comes out in may that's part of dc's new uh hanna-barbera weirdo line now, did that get did, did that get pitched to you or was that something that you were like huh came, no, they came to us and said hey we want you guys to do this so that's what we did, and it's actually turned out to be a, a lot of fun. What's interesting for me is I, I, I am not very, uh, or have not been very Scooby, uh, a Scooby file or anything. I didn't really grow <laughs> up watching Scooby Doo, and then this past year or so, I ended up writing like five episodes of the new Scooby Doo uh, cartoon show on Cartoon Network, and then completely unrelated, get presented with this book. So all of a sudden, I'm like immersed in these characters in this universe and it's two very very different interpretations of that universe and yet at heart they're the same characters you know so it's been it's been a lot of fun in fact we just just finished up the second issue and uh it's been more fun than i expected it to be where where the approach is sort of one of our touchstones is the movie zombie land which is a i'm not a zombie fan but i love that movie and it's that mix of of serious horror but with a lot of character-based humor so, you know, the humor that you used to when Keith and I worked together is in there, and yet the horror elements are played straight. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. We'll see. I know, I'm sure there are, there are really hardcore Scooby people who just can't bear the idea of this different interpretation. <laughs> so I'm interested to see what the reactions are, but I think, I think the, uh, the general audience and, and open-minded Scooby fans will, will enjoy this book tremendously. Which of the, the Scooby gang is kind of your, your favorite to write for? You know, it's, like I said, we're, we're kind of uh, early in the in the process. Although I have, like I said, I have written this stuff for the animated show. Uh, I like Shaggy. What I like about him in in, in this in the comic is that he's sort of our, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, our Blue Beetle character. I always thought of Blue Beetle in our Justice League as as the guy standing in for our audience. He was he was the most regular guy, to put it in quotes, of the bunch, and really connect. I, I connected to him in a very personal way. He felt like my stand-in in some ways. And, and Shaggy feels the same way. He's sort of goofy, but he's not stupid. He's a very compassionate guy, and he's a very average guy who, when he's thrust into the middle of all this stuff, you can look at these events through his eyes and, uh, and react through that. And then, you know, and he's got this wonderful relationship with this dog, and it's very sweet, and he's a really sweet character. So I, I, I think so far, uh, I relate to him the most. There are interesting interpretations. Uh, Velma in the comic now is very uh, real. She's always been played intellectually, but she's very, very much a creature of the mind here, almost to the detriment of her emotions, uh, which is kind of the way they're playing her in the new cartoon show. Um, Daphne is, is totally kick-ass. And Fred, in, in a funny way, kind of plays Scooby to Daphne Shaggy because he uh, he is her devoted puppy in a lot of ways, you know? <laughs> he'll go wherever she goes. He'll walk into any danger for her. And uh, it's an interesting relationship. And I, again, we're, we're early in the process, and I find the way Keith and I work, he maps out the plots, 
and then I develop things further through the dialogue, and then I, what I get to do really is play with the characters. And you discover the characters, at least I do, by having them talk to each other. So Keith sets up a situation, I get the dialogue going, and then start talking, and I go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't realize that. And suddenly le- levels and layers that I didn't know were there in the characters just kind of pop out. It's, it's a great way for us to work. Uh, Keith does a lot of the heavy lifting, and then I get to play. <laughs> Now that, we actually, now that we're kind of talking about uh, your work in animation, we had a listener question, which was, uh, what did you kind of find better or worse about you know writing animated television as opposed to writing the comics? I, I always say that the difference is, uh, you know going in when you're writing for television, and that's something I, you know, I obviously I continue to do. In fact, I've, I've been uh, developing for the past year a, a, a pilot, a live-action pilot that we're we're taking out very soon to the network, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that one. But you, you, you're part of a collaboration, you're part of a team. And when I get hired to write for these animated shows, uh, I'm not going to go in and say, oh, and here is my vision of Thundercats, and I'm going to tell you how to... It doesn't work that way. Because uh, usually there's a producer, there's a showrunner, they're developing the season, they're developing the arc of the characters, they're developing all these things, and they'll come to you and, you say, and they'll say... Here's the story we're thinking of for your episode. And then you start bouncing things around. And my job is to put on, take off my individual creator hat and put on my collaborator hat. Once I get that collaborator hat on, it's really fun. Because I get to work with some really smart, fun, creative people. And my job is is to A, um, do what they tell me. You know, take their vision and get it onto the page. But also to bring as much of myself as I possibly can to personalize uh, that vision to bring as much of myself to the table. So I'm not just sort of, all right, this is what you want here, I'll do it. It's, uh, this is what you want, I'm going to bring everything I've got to it and bring as much, of, as much of myself to the table as I can. But if you go into TV thinking, you know, even, even, even in comics, even when you're writing Spider-Man or Superman or Batman, there's a lot of leeway to put a really, truly, deeply personal stamp on those characters, as I've been lucky enough to do. Um, it doesn't really work that way in TV unless you're the guy calling the shots, unless you're the producer or the showrunner. You're part of the team, but you always have to bring as much of yourself to the table as you can because it has to mean something to you. Uh, so it's really fun. I mean, some of the most fun I've had is working on these animated movies. Uh, I just did a Batman versus Robin and Batman uh, Bad Blood and working with uh, you know James Tucker and Alan Burnett and Mike Carlin on these movies and getting on the phone with these guys and just sitting for two hours and talking story and bouncing things back and forth. And these you know these guys aren't studio executives. I mean, they're in executive positions, but they're writers first and foremost. So you're dealing with people that really understand story. And it's, it's, it's really been a pleasure. I've been very lucky. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I've had any really bad experiences working, working in animation or in TV in general. You know, there's always a, a bump in the road here or there. But in general, it's been a really great experience. In general, with the uh, with the animated work, what would you say is your your most proud proudest achievement, or the thing you wrote that you're most proud of? In terms of just the experience of writing it, uh, I think the best experience from beginning to end was working on Batman versus Robin. It was just one of those projects where, it, from the from the first word on the page, it just went so smoothly. Uh, creatively, the ideas, the writing, everything just flew by. Whether that individually is, you know, in the final product is my favorite thing, I don't know. It's, I'm still too close to it. Uh, but I really loved working on that. And then probably my two favorite shows, although, again, I've enjoyed them all, my two favorite shows are probably uh, Justice League Unlimited and I think even a little more Batman Brave and the Bold, which was just such a fun show. I wrote, I think, seven or eight episodes of that show. And, uh, 
you know, every episode that you got the team Batman up with a different character, and there was usually someone else in the teaser. So you had, you just had. There was so much fun to play, and it was a. It could be a very very lighthearted tone. You could get a little bit more serious, and it was the show that time and again people would come up to me and say, you know, I, I watched that with my seven year old kid, and we both love it. And we both enjoy it, and that that's oh, very gratifying to me to work on a piece that you know uh, parents and children can enjoy together and enjoy equally albeit in different ways you know so that that show was a lot of fun but justice league unlimited it's a classic i think it's one of the best versions of the justice league that's ever been done and uh, i i don't take the credit for that the whole credit goes to to uh the guys working on the show on staff but uh, it was really a great show and i'm very honored that i was a part of that and that you know the very first episode i got to do for that was an adaptation of alan moore's for the man who uh has everything. That was a, quite a big way to start on that show. Absolutely. Did you ever talk to Alan more about it? No, I did not. I only met Alan once, like in the 80s, in Karen Berger's office for like 15 minutes, so it's not like we have a relationship or anything. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, I think through the grapevine, I heard that he was he was uh, pretty pleased with it. Um, I hope that's true. Um, but I've never heard him complain about it, so that's a very good thing. Yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's almost better. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, what was it like working on Earth Final Conflict? Well, that was a long time ago. Um, that was a, that was an interesting show too. I, I, again, you know, so many of these things for me, it's less about the final product and more about the relationships. And I worked with some very good people on that show who really uh, appreciated me and appreciated my work, and I had a lot of respect for them. So the creative work, uh, working with them, was really uh, a pleasure. And um, you know, it's funny with TV because you can work on something and for reasons that have nothing to do with you, your script will get rewritten sometimes tremendously. But it ends up being because of something with the budget or something with the scenery or the production designer says, no, we can't do this, do that. And then they have to sit down and rewrite it. And I remember working on one of those and and uh, they had to do like a big rewrite on it. And, but they then they came back and said, "Oh, we want you to do more. You did a fantastic job." So it kind of explodes your brain a little bit <laughs> because you know it takes a while to realize. Okay, so the reason they rewrote this was not because they didn't like what I did, but because of you know a hundred other factors that go into producing a TV show that they have to change things at the last minute. So that's that's one of the aspects of TV. You know, I had things come on TV and it's uh, with my name written by you know, and I go, "Okay, I'm searching for like a word that I wrote in this show, oh, and wow. it's not." And other times, you know, 90% of what you wrote is up there. There's always going to be a change because the director is going to come in, whether it's an animation or live action, and have an idea and restage something. An actor might decide, hey, I'm going to play with this little speech in this section and spin it around a little bit. Um, you know, probably the best, in a lot of ways, uh, certainly in terms of live action, uh, best experience I had was working on the live action Superboy show way, way back in the day. Because those scripts came out pretty much the way I wrote them. I, I loved working with the, the guys on staff, and I actually worked on staff for a, for a short period of time to help come in and help them out on that. And it was just, that was like my film school. <laughs> I did, I think, five episodes of that. And I really learned so much about how all the elements uh, have to come together. You can have the best script in the world, but if, the, if, if, if it's the wrong actors, it's going to die. If, the, if it's the wrong director, it's going to die. You can have a great director and great actors, but if the script isn't right, you really have to have everything in balance for it to work. And uh, there's a two-parter I did for them, which was sort of filled in the backstory on Lex Luthor, called Know Thine Enemy, where Superboy uh, uses the machine to take a journey into Luthor's memories. 
and uh, Sherman Howard, who played Lex Luthor on that show. Now, most people have never even seen that show, you know? But I think he might have been the best Luthor ever, and he did such a brilliant job in it. He had a really excellent director on that one, and I'm as proud of that as anything I've ever done. It really turned out really, really well. And most people haven't even ever seen it. Yeah, it's not as uh, well. I guess no one's really they haven't really been collecting it or trying to get people to watch it. I guess no, it's, it's, it hasn't been rerun on television. I think if you give through Warner Archive, you know where they collect just about everything, you can get you can get um, you can get them on disc, and I believe that iTunes iTunes has them. So if uh, anyone has the the desire to poke around and, and check out a two part episode called Know Thine Enemy, you'll find a really really good Lex Luthor story there. Well, anyway. And a great story by you, obviously. Very proud of that story, really. And, and again, it's a story that really, it's pretty much, this is what I wrote, and here it is. And we had excellent actors doing it, a really superb director. So, uh, and weirdly, it was it was kind of, it was Superboy that uh, that got me into animation, because Stan Berkowitz was the producer on Superboy, a great guy, and brilliant writer. And uh, when, when he was done with Superboy, uh, I happened to plug him in to Marty Pasco, who was, at that point, producing uh, uh, the 1990s Spider-Man cartoon. Stan ended up getting very deeply into animation, winning Emmys, and working on all those great, you know, Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series and Justice League and all that. And then a few years later, he was the guy that called me up and said, "Hey, you want to write for Justice League Unlimited?" So it sort of went around in a circle there. But that was that that became my doorway into animation. Hmm. So let's go back in time for a minute. Let's. What was your first kind of interaction with comics? Interaction as a creator or as a reader? Uh, let's go as a reader. I, I always say this to people, and it's true. I don't remember a time when I wasn't reading them. I don't know where they came from or how they magically appeared, you know? <laughs> but I must, you know, as a little, because as a little kid, I always liked to draw, so I liked the visual. Drawing was my big thing when I was a kid. So I, I have to assume that I was just very drawn to this, this little package full of all these amazing pictures. And I, I know I had a cousin that was into comics, and maybe she was the one who turned me on to them. I'm not really sure, because I, I, I was so young that I can't say, ah, here's the first comic I ever read. I was probably four years old or something reading comics. And, uh, my parents, thank God, were always very generous. I remember I used to take walks with my father. He'd go to buy the evening paper, and he'd buy me a comic book. So it was always part of my life, and it was that 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 amazing. I think some of us that become obsessed with this stuff, there must be some chemical in our brain that just when it sees that combination of words and pictures, that chemical gets released, and something magical happens in our brain, and then we become addicted. You know, <laughs> for some people it's chocolate, for some people it's heroin, for some of us it's that it's that beautiful combination of words and pictures, and that happened to me very young, and it never went away. Now, when did you decide that you know I want to I want to actually do this? You know, I was always creative. Like I was always drawing. When I was a kid, I was, you know, the kid on the floor, you know, with his uh, pencils and crayons making his own comic books. I, um, uh, I was a musician. Uh, I played in bands. I was a songwriter. And I, and I just liked to write as well. So I always knew I was going to do something, uh, something in the creative arts. I didn't know what it was, but I remember being like 14 years old saying to a friend, I'm never going to have a nine-to-five job. It's just not going to happen, you know. I'm going to do something creative, and thank God. I always say that God made me so bad at everything else that I had no choice <laughs> but to be creative because I would have been uh, living in a box otherwise, you know. Um, so, you know, so I was doing music and and and, and uh, do, doing art, and then the, the, the music sort of took over from the art, but I but I continued to write. 
And uh, it wasn't that I set out to say, oh, I'm going to be a comic book writer, but I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And in fact, I worked uh, in uh, rock and roll journalism really before I even uh, got into comics. And then those things kind of overlapped. And then I just sort of knocked on the door and knocked on the door and knocked on the door until I started getting regular work. And that really happened by way of Paul Levitz at DC. Um, I sent in some samples uh, and... Um, you know, I kept sending in stuff, and he kept tearing it apart. And I'd send in more, and he'd tear it apart. And then finally, I sold him some stuff, and it was like, oh wow, this is amazing. And one of my favorite memories of uh, of my entire career is Paul. I was up in uh, the DC offices at the time, and he shook my hand and said, "Welcome to the business." You know, and that was oh, what a great feeling. Wow, what a great feeling. Yeah. You know? Now, what, um, so besides that that handshake, what was the the first kind of what was the writing assignment that made you feel like I've really made it? Like, I've, I've, I'm doing it. Oh, that's a good question. Now, on some level, you know, if you're really honest with yourself, you never feel like you've made it or you're doing it. <laughs> because the great thing and the nightmare about, about what we do is that, at least for me, every job is the first job. Every mm. story, it's as if you've never written before. Because, you're, you know, you're facing that blank page. And, yeah, you, you've developed certain muscles over the years. But still, you're starting from scratch. And all the terror is there as if it's your first story. But, you know, where did I feel like I finally got, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know. I really don't know because I think um, most creative people are smart enough and insecure enough to not, you know, necessarily buy their own publicity. Mm. So, you know, so even when things are going really, really, really well, I mean, you may be proud of a piece of work, but the idea to think that I've made it, you know, <laughs> now I'm here, now I'm at the mountaintop, I don't think it works that way. There's a lot of work that I knew when it was done that I was incredibly proud of it. Um, and, but even then, you don't know that it's going to succeed because I've done projects that, that I thought were great and didn't succeed. And then you find out 10 years later that people loved it or they, or they found it over the, you know. So you never know. And, and the things that may come out and be a big hit in the moment maybe aren't the things that will last. It's a very strange thing. I just finished reading um, the third volume of this wonderful Orson Welles biography by Simon Callow. And, you know, and there's a guy, you know, in his lifetime, everyone said, oh, he did Citizen Kane, he never did anything else. Well, he continued to do amazing work for the rest of his life, a lot of which only became appreciated after he was dead. Now, I'm not saying this to compare myself in any way to Orson Welles, <laughs> but just to say that, in, you know, in, in the creative life, you just, you never really know. One great example uh, for me is uh, around 2001 or so, I did a Spectre series for DC. It was when Hal Jordan was the Spectre. And um, what I remember at the time is that people hated it, just hated it. And I think the people that were fans of Hal Jordan wanted him to be Green Lantern. And the people that were Spectre fans, they wanted their old Spectre back who turns into a giant cheese grater and grates the bad guys into shreds, you know. <laughs> and this was a very different take. This was about Hal's redemption, about his transformation from the spirit of vengeance into the spirit of redemption. And I just remember it felt like there were bullets flying over my head all the time when that book was coming out. I had a great time writing it. And I poured my heart and soul into it. Um, and then, you know, 10 years or whatever went by. And I started encountering people at conventions or they'd write to me or right now these days I find them on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, who just took that book so deeply into their hearts and they totally got what I was trying to do and say with that book. And it's a book that now shows up regularly when I'm at conventions and people bring their whole set of specters for me to sign. At the time, I, I thought it was a miserable failure. So you just... You don't know. It happened also with my Captain America run, which when I, when I did it, you know, back in the 80s, was like, 
no one hated it, but I don't remember anyone particularly loving it or thinking it was great. And then time passed, even more, you know, and then all of a sudden, I'm signing a lot of Captain America books at conventions, and a lot of people are telling me how much that they love that run, and it's one of their favorite runs. And so, so you know, you know, you never know. So I try to keep that in mind now. If something comes out in tanks, to know, you know, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that right now it's not creating that chemistry. But in five years, ten years, who knows? Who knows how it's going to come back to you? And it's an important thing to keep in mind because we get. You know, we're, we're sailing, when we sail our work out into the world, we're sailing our hearts and souls out into the world. And when we get rejected, it's very personal. As much as we do, we try not to take it personally, I should say we, but I'm sure it's pretty true of most of us that do this. But as much as I try not to take it personally, sometimes you can't help it. And you're very wounded when something goes out there and dies or you see like a, a horrendous review. Just the same way that when someone really gets the work and understands it and takes it into their heart, um, you know, one letter like that, I'm good for a week because because that's the main reason that I write. I write first for myself, and then I write because I wanna I wanna touch somebody's heart. I wanna stimulate uh, their minds, but more than anything, I wanna touch their hearts. You know, and so when I get that back, that really means the world to me. And I kind of went off topic, I think, but I hope it's still related to what we started from. No, it does uh, absolutely. Um, now, when you were initially kind of in the industry, I mean, looking at kind of the comics you were writing, it was, it was kind of a, a weird hodgepodge. But what was it like to kind of push yourself in all those different areas when you're, you know, kind of just getting random work here and there as a freelancer? Yeah, well, you know, in the beginning, you just do anything. If they would have said, you know, we want Millie the Model meets Godzilla, I'd say, man, I'm going to write the best Millie the Model meets Godzilla story that I possibly can. Because you're starting out, you have to establish a, a career, you have to establish a reputation, and and you need to pay the bills. And if, you know, you're getting paid to write. Shit, I'll write anything, please. You know. Um, and then you know, time goes by, and what you know, what happened for me? The big the big shift for me was, um, you know, in the in the early to mid '80s. Things started changing in comics. You know, at DC, I think Frank Miller did Ronin. At 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 Marvel, they launched the Epic line. There were there were these these indie uh, companies coming up with people getting to do more personal work. And uh, I kind of looked around and said, "Oh, I really I need to do something like that." Because as much as I love the Marvel and DC universes, you know, there, there's a cage there. It's a great cage, and I love playing in it. But it's a cage, and you know, you want to stretch beyond the parameters of that cage. So I did Moonshadow for uh, for Epic Comics, uh, which was really, in a lot of ways, the precursor to Vertigo. I always like to say, you know, I was doing pretentious painted comics way before it was in vogue. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but Moonshadow was the project that completely liberated me, not just as a comic book writer, but as a writer. Because uh, I sat down to work on that, and suddenly I wasn't writing a Marvel comic or a DC comic in my mind. I wasn't even writing a comic. I was just writing you know, from the very, very deeps of my heart and soul, and writing about the things that I was the most passionate about, working with an extraordinary collaborator like John J. Muth, and uh, you know, it was it was another one that that, it, that it, in its way and in its day was very groundbreaking. Not that we ever set out to do anything groundbreaking; we we're just trying to tell a good story. Um, and then it came out, and people were like, "I've never read a comic book like this before. I've never seen anything like this before." But you don't think that again when you're creating something. Um, but more importantly, it freed me up creatively so that when I returned to the Marvel Universe, say, to do Craven's Last Hunt, a couple of years, right after Moonshadow I finished, I had been stretched so far by Moonshadow that I could bring 
that sort of new perspective to the work I was doing in the mainstream, and and that fed in there and really. Uh, I don't. There couldn't have been a Craven's Last Last Hunt if there hadn't been things like Moonshadow and Blood that I had done for Epic. No, we actually have a, a listener question. They ask uh, any chance of a complete Moonshadow Deluxe Edition because his life feels incomplete without it. I know because the, the DC the DC one is out of print. We got the rights back, and right now we're looking around for just the right publisher to bring it out again. So we would like to. Um, we would very very much like to get that out there. I've been lucky enough the past. Uh, year or two to get a lot of things, especially Vertigo projects that have gone out of print, uh, back into print. Uh, Dover Books just put out a, a collection of Mercy. They're going to do a complete collection of Seekers into the Mystery. Um, IDW in September is putting out another of my Vertigo series called The Last One. Um, a lot, so uh, I, it's really important to me to keep get these things back out and keep them in print because, you know, these are the most personal projects uh there are for me, you know, IDW uh, a couple of years ago put out a beautiful hardcover edition of Brooklyn Dreams. Uh, so, so yes, we're working on it with both Moonshadow and Blood, and I hope that that you know sometime this year we'll we'll get the right publisher lined up and um, and get it back out in the world. Now, we have a, I have a few questions from a listener who really wanted to know more about, I guess, your um, your writing style, but also your influences. So, uh, bear with me. This is a longer question. Okay. Uh, he said, a lot of your semi-autobiographical spiritual work is highly reminiscent of the prose works of writers like Philip Roth, Joseph Heller, Saul Bellow, and people like Neil Simon. Were you influenced by them and any other Jewish writers you admired or were influenced by? Interesting. Um, I haven't read a lot of Philip Roth, but I remember like devouring Portnoy's Complaint when I was in college. You know that was that was wonderful. And Joseph Heller, uh, I also read. Um, whether they were influences on me, I, I, I can't say. Uh, you know, in terms of Jewish writers, that's interesting. Uh, certainly Woody Allen. I, although you know, although uh, although I've read, you know, he's known primarily for film, although he's certainly written prose as well. But you know, I, I love Woody Allen totally, especially you know, up up till. I would say, you know, my favorite period is up through the late 80s. Um, and certainly, you look at Moonshadow, and you can see uh, a certain Woody Allen influence in there. Moonshadow to me was, well, Moonshadow to me was a, a, every influence I ever had uh, came out through that book. But uh, I don't know if there's, a, there's certainly a specifically Jewish influence. If I think of a Jewish writer whose work really impacted me, it would probably be Isaac Bashev, singer, whose work I just completely, completely adore. But I understand where he's looking at something like Philip Roth. And Neil Simon, you know, kind of overlaps with the Woody Allen thing, you know? Mm. Um, um, I guess you, you look at something like Brooklyn Dreams and you look at something like Brighton Beach um, Memoirs or Woody Allen's Radio Days, and there's a place where that all comes together. But the writers that have influenced me the most um, in terms of, of, of novelists, um, I love Dostoevsky. I love Dickens, uh, Ray Bradbury. I worship at the altar of Ray Bradbury every day. Um, many, many other great writers. But if I, oh, Kurt Vonnegut, it's another one I completely adore, and you can see the Vonnegut influence certainly in Moonshadow. Um, so, in poets like William Blake, and and then you know you go into film and people like Woody Allen and Monty Python and all these things. You know, they all sort of rumble around in your brain. I think you know. Everything that's ever taught for me, I look back and I think of certain things I saw as a kid. You know, The Wizard of Oz or Disney's Pinocchio or Peter Pan that imprinted so deeply on my brain that to this day, even when I'm not thinking about it, I, I see that imagery popping up in my work. Hmm. You know, whether it's a giant whale or a giant floating head or whatever it is, 
it imprints so deeply. Another incredible influence was Rod Serling with The Twilight Zone, uh, a show I started watching when I was very young. And and I, I often ponder, I once wrote a blog post about it, did I respond to it uh, and it created my worldview, or did I respond to it because that was the worldview I already had, and, and that sort of echoed and mirrored that worldview back at me. But whatever it is, that view of the universe uh, uh, that's presented in the Twilight Zone is very close to the way I view so-called real life, and that has had a profound influence on me. And of course, Sterling and Bradbury are overlap tremendously. So, you know, it's a big soup of, of, all those, of all those things. Absolutely. Actually, it's interesting. So the next question that the same, the same listener had was, uh, how did your love of Dostoevsky influence your work and are there any other Russian influences? Dostoevsky is the primary Russian influence. I, I have to say that I never sort of immersed myself in all of Russian literature. Um, but I discovered Dostoevsky when I was like 17. We were reading Crime and Punishment in high school. And I don't know if any book I'd ever read had impacted me. Uh, so profoundly and I think you know people say that in Dostoevsky the unconscious becomes conscious in his characters <laughs> and and I only say half jokingly you know in the, in the house that I grew up in that wasn't the unconscious becoming conscious that's the way people were you know there's that sort of like uh, that heightened hysterical sort of uh, sort of way of living that's that all those characters have in his stories and 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 that you know hearts that are just ripped open and people that are so extreme and then of course there's always the undercurrent of the spiritual search in there which was uh, what was and remains so important to me both in my life and in my work which reminds me also of uh, Herman Hess who's another writer whose work uh, was a huge influence on me um, but yeah, just so so you know, it's not like I ever set out to. I'm going to write a story and be like Dostoevsky. <laughs> um, but you know, again, did I respond to Dostoevsky? Did he somehow shape my worldview, or did I respond to it because it's so mirrored what I already felt? And I think any writer that touches our souls, and I'm not the first person to say this, um, we respond. I think because it touches some place in us where we already know that. We already, we already feel that truth, and then suddenly you come across a story or even a sentence that makes you go, yes, that's, that's exactly right, because I believe that to the core of my soul, and you see it mirrored in that work, and then mirrored, hopefully, and expanded in that work. So, um, and that, that certainly Dostoevsky did for me, um, and uh, so many of his novels, but The Brothers Karamazov, uh, first and foremost, really just uh, an extraordinary book. And yeah, we can keep talking, and more will pop into my head. There's a Swedish writer named Par Lagerqvist, who I really, really love. J.D. Salinger, one of my absolute favorite writers of all time, uh, certainly a, a huge influence, um, and, and on, and we could talk about that all day. And then, you know, in comics, there's a whole other list, you know, Lee and Kirby and Steve Gerber and Len Wein and on and on and on and on, with people whose work touched me and shaped me and influenced me. Okay, um, I have some more questions from the same listener, so let's, I'll, I'll, I'll keep running through them. He asked, uh, what were your, pl- your plans for Seekers Into the Mystery and any chance of continuing that series? Well, happily, as I just mentioned, uh, sometime this year, I'm not sure when, maybe in September, October, no, or maybe it'll be early next year, but Dover Books is going to put out a collection of all 15 issues, which has never been done. Uh, Boom Studios put out the first five but never finished collecting them. So I'm really excited that um, we're going to have the whole thing collected. And people have asked me that about continuing Seekers, and part of me would really love to because that was one of those series that I had planned, you know, the next two or three years after where we were, we were sort of mapped out. 
and uh, there was a long road to go. The flip side of that is it's been a while, so to return to that world and that, those characters um, it could be difficult, but it could be a challenge. So I guess I have to wait and see how the collection does. And maybe if the collection does well, maybe I would uh, want to um, to continue those stories. But that's a that's a way in the future. But that's another series that really, really was deeply personal and uh, and means a lot to me. And I got to work with phenomenal artists. I mean, Glenn Barr, who did Brooklyn Dreams, worked on it. John J. Muth, who did Moonshadow, and Michael Zuli, who everyone knows from his work on Sandman, uh, Jill Thompson. Just you know, really phenomenal artists bringing these stories to life. It was a great it was a great project, and it was. Uh, very sorry that we only we only made it through 15 issues before they pulled the plug. Actually brings up the next question, which is, uh, do you have any interesting anecdotes about working with people like John J. Muth, Kent Williams, Michael Zuli, John Buscema, and Mike Plug? Oh, God, yeah, well, there's zillions of stories. I, in fact, I just I just uh, put something on my on my blog at my website, which is uh, jmdmateus.com. You can go and read it, so I don't have to go into it all here. But it's a little tribute to Mike Plug, who was one of the most extraordinary collaborators and one of the most wonderful characters I have ever known. Um, I was a huge fan of Mike's before we ever worked together. And then when we got put together on Abadazad, this was a, sto- a story that I had in my head that I was developing for like 10 years. But once Mike came into that project, I could not imagine Abadazad without him. And we just clicked from the first phone call, from the first panel, from the first word on the page, there was some magical chemical click that happened that's really inexplicable and I try to talk to people about it and I just it's just the way it is when you know you walk into a party and you see a beautiful girl and you walk over there and you start to talk to her and there's no chemistry she may be the most beautiful girl in the world but there's no chemistry and then there's some other girl standing next to her and you, you get into a conversation and you click instantly and that's the way it is with uh, with writers and artists on comics I've seen stuff where I write a great script they do a great job on the art. You put it together and it just dies. And then there's people like Mike Plug. I don't know why, how, or what, and it's just magic from the very beginning. And uh, Mike has had a really extraordinary life, and it's one of those guys you can sit with him and he'll tell you stories for three hours, and you'll want him to talk for another three hours because he's just such a larger-than-life entertaining guy and one of the most, I think, one of the most brilliant artists on the planet, period. Um, and, you know, the same thing with everybody that, that was mentioned there. Um, the wonderful thing about work, working with Muth and Williams is that we lived in the same area. A lot of times you're working long distance. Mike was in England when I was working with him on Abadazad, whereas Jay and Kent lived nearby. And so, you know, working on Moonshadow, Jay and I would get together for breakfast and go over this script, and he'd maybe do little little layouts on a napkin in the restaurant. So it was a very, very intimate collaboration. Kent Williams literally lived next door to me when we were working on Blood. We lived in the same little... Uh, country apartment complex you know so i'd run over to his apartment with some idea or he'd run over to my apartment with some artwork and it was a constant back and forth and that's an incredible and very very um exhilarating way to work together um, so was there someone else that he mentioned there other than those um uh, zuli and john busema yeah zuli zuli also you know although we, you know we weren't in the same room doing it but he's another one that we really hit it off right from the get-go and, and became friends almost instantly. And he's a deep-thinking artist, really a deep-thinking artist. One of those guys who picks up the phone and starts talking to you about your story and sees things there 
that you yourself didn't notice, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, so uh, really, it was really, uh, I worked with him on that. We did uh, some things at Marvel together. We did a, a long shot story together and some Spider-Man stuff together. And and uh, what else? Oh, we did, um, when DC did that 9-11 comic years ago, we did a story for that 9-11 anthology that was a really nice story that he did a beautiful job with. But a very, very deep thinking guy and an amazing artist. And he's, uh, I believe, he should be doing a new cover for the, for the new Seekers collection. Zombie mm. Seven was another, it's another issue entirely, and I may have told this story before, but you know, when I started, uh, I was working on Conan, it was the first regular gig I got at Marvel. And this is back in the day where Roy Thomas had been writing Conan for 10 years. And Roy Thomas was Conan. No one else had written Conan. And here's this like newbie writer comes along and they said, yeah, you want to write Conan? And I'm like, oh, okay. Those were huge shoes to fill. And I was completely intimidated. And, you know, looking back, I did my best, but I, I can't claim, there may have been one or two stories that I could look at now and go, hey, that was pretty good. But for the most part, when I look back, all I just see is my nervous younger self trying desperately to not fail completely working on that book. And then on top of that, I'm working with John Buscema. You know, this legend, if I was going to pick, uh, you know, my favorite Marvel comic series of all time, the Lee Buscema Silver Surfer comics, the first six issues of that are just some of the best comics ever done as far as I'm concerned. So I'm working with John Buscema. Um, and he was not happy with my stories. He was not happy. And, and, and so I would get these grumblings through our editor that he didn't like this about the story, he didn't like that about the story. So uh, I finally got on the phone with him. And he explained the things that bothered him. And, oh, we shouldn't be this. It's a Conan story. You can't do that. It shouldn't be like that. And that's fine. He's John Buscema. Whatever he says, you know, fine. So I made sure to tailor the very next story to everything he said. I did all his specifications. And he drew the story, and he left the book. (laughs) (laughs) So... I guess I was the guy that drove John Buscema off the monthly Conan book. I think he went and just worked on the black and white magazine instead. I can't completely complain because the next issue they presented me with Gil Kane, who was one of my comic book artist gods, you know, whose work I loved since I was a kid. So the chance to work with Gil Kane was an amazing thing. Um, again, I look back at the stories and I don't know, you know, uh, I was young, I was new, I was intimidated, I was doing my best, but working with John Buscema and, and, uh, and Kill Kane, that's amazing. You know, when I first started at Marvel, a lot of those guys, these legends, were still working in the business. You know, they hadn't, they hadn't left yet. I worked with Gene Colan on some black and white Hulk stories for the Hulk magazine, another artist who I just adored. You know, I got to work at DC with uh, Dick Giordano. I had some stories that were illustrated by Steve Ditko, uh, Don Heck, all these guys that were like my heroes growing up. So I would love to get a time machine and go back in time and write some stories for them worthy of their talents, you know? (laughs) You know, you do the best you can. And here's the thing I've also learned over the years and why, despite what I just said, I hate to ever publicly knock anything I've written because you sit at a convention and inevitably someone comes along with a comic that you always thought was like just the worst thing you've ever written and they say, you know what? This is the first comic book I ever read. It meant so much to me. This is why I read comics today, because of this story. So you never know. And again, you, you know, you just can't be the, the, the best judge of your own work. And and why put something down? Because you never know somebody out there that that's their favorite comic. So there you go. Um, the, same, the, the same person. He has, he has a ton of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions. Uh, yeah. 
Um, he asked, uh, how do you feel about your run on Doctor Strange with Mark Buckingham, and do you wish it had been longer, and where would you have gone from if had you had you stayed? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I absolutely do. Would have, I would have loved for it to have been longer. You know, uh, one of my favorite projects that I ever did was a Doctor Strange graphic novel, uh, which uh, I co-plotted and was illustrated by my friend Dan Green, called Into Shambhala. I think one of the best things I, I ever did for Marvel. And I love Doctor Strange. He's always been one of my all-time favorite characters. I'm like a, I'm like a ten-year-old. I cannot wait for this movie to come out. If there's any, if there's any uh, comic book-related movie coming out that I am like completely excited about. It's the Doctor Strange movie. Um, so you know, when I finally got to write the monthly book, that was really a treat. And I did this first big storyline with Baron Zemo, which had to deal with the death of Baron and redemption of Baron Zemo. And uh, very excited. But by the time we were finishing that first four-issue story. Word came down basically that the book was going to be canceled. So I'm just starting to get traction, and the book is canceled. And the editor asked me to basically tie up a bunch of old plot lines. Oh, you know. So again, you do the best with what you're given. So there was there were two issues wrapping up this particular plot line, then a couple of issues wrapping up another plot line, and then the book was done. And it was very, very frustrating. Uh, very frustrating. Mark Buckingham is brilliant. He's a perfect artist for Doctor Strange. You know, perfect artist for Doctor Strange. Uh, and I would have loved to, because we were just getting started, so I would imagine had we had time to build that chemical reaction and really keep going with that book, you know, by the end of a year we would have been doing something really special. But, you know, having the plug pulled so easy, easily uh, and then having to wrap up these other plot lines, I never really got to put that stamp on the book that I wanted to. And interestingly enough, what happened after that was there was some talk that we would do some Doctor Strange specials a couple of times a year. So they asked me to uh, to write this 45-page Doctor Strange one-shot, which I just was happened to be looking at it with opened a drawer in my office, and I still had it in there. Wow. So, um, and I, I mentioned it on Twitter, and people were like, oh, you should ask Marvel, get in touch with Marvel, see if they want to do it. So, I mean, it's, it's a really nice 45-page Doctor Strange story despite the fact that it's from the 90s and references, you know, Fabio and MTV. Um, <laughs> but it's a really good story. Uh, um, so I, I actually uh, got in touch with somebody over at Marvel, sent them the story, and I'm waiting to hear back because maybe we'll get to finally uh, do the story that was never done back in 1997 or eight or whenever it was, um, which would be a real treat, a real treat, because I really do. That's one characters i would love to return to silver surfer is also a character i'd love to return to one of those are probably along with spider-man my, my favorite marvel characters okay uh another listener question which is uh what was the genesis of greenberg the vampire greenberg the vampire uh which also marvel just put out a new edition uh, a couple of months back so uh if, if you've never read it that's another one that i consider one of that's in my top 10 of my favorite things that i've ever done and, and it's it's it is out now from Marvel back back in print. In fact, I did. There were two Greenberg stories, but it started out as a short story. When I was first, you know, when I was uh, first trying to make it as a writer, I would, you know, I was playing in a band at night, and I, during the day I'd be writing short stories or sending out proposals or whatever. And one of the short stories that I wrote was about this neurotic Jewish uh, vampire who was also a horror writer named Oscar Greenberg. And I never sold it, but I, I you know, the the story stayed in my head. And then around the same time, I took a screenwriting course. And I and I started turning Greenberg into a into a screenplay, and so and I never and I and I never finished it. But it was uh, but I, I got about you know two thirds of the way through, and then you know as often happens with a lot of projects, you start it and you put it aside and you move on to something else. And so uh, when I first started at Marvel, Denny O'Neill was uh, editing 
bizarre adventures. And uh, the, the point of that book was that you could do bizarre things and offbeat things. And he said, well, you have anything? I said, well, I have this wacky story called Greenberg the Vampire, uh, which now that I think of it, I actually originally pitched to DC because I, I did a series for DC when I first started out called I, Vampire. Now, Len Wein wanted uh, to put some regular series into I'm, uh, House of Mystery. He said he wanted, he gave me the title, I Vampire, so he give me a vampire story. So I came back to him with Greenberg the Vampire. He said, no, not that story. <laughs> that was not the right story for House of Mystery. But I pitched it to Danny, and he loved it. Uh, Steve Leloa drew it. And it was uh, maybe a 25-page story or 22-page story. And I was just starting out at Marvel, just really, you know, and in the beginning, I really felt like I was trying so hard uh, to recreate my favorite stories that I'd read in the past. It was, it was... It was Stan Lee by way, by way of Steve Gerber, by way of you know Len Wein, by way of me, that I hadn't found my own voice yet. And I wrote this uh, Greenberg story, and I, because, as with Moonshadow, and this is even before Moonshadow, by stepping out of the Marvel Universe and just writing a story as myself, my voice appeared, my, my own particular unique voice. And all of a sudden, you know, no one had said two words to me, like, I love that story or anything. Suddenly Greenberg comes out and everyone is coming up to me in the office to tell me how much they loved it, what a great story it was. And, uh, and at the time, I couldn't quite figure out, well, how come they love this? And I didn't love, you know, last month's Defenders or whatever, you know? <laughs> and it was really because it was mine. It came from me through my own voice, not filtered through anybody else's. Um, and then a couple of years later, I kept, you know, basically, I kept harassing Jim Shooter until he let me do a Greenberg graphic novel. And uh, I got Mark Badger, who I had worked with on the Gargoyle miniseries for, for Marvel, to do that. and did a, He did a beautiful job. And so the Greenberg graphic novel is just a, a piece of work that I'm very proud of. And what's great is that the new edition that came out, I guess, last fall from Marvel has both the original story from Bizarre Adventures and the whole graphic novel all together in one edition. So uh, I'm excited about that. But Greenberg really was a story... It was sort of the precursor to Moonshadow, that, that story that allowed me to begin to find my own voice as a writer and not just be some guy trying to imitate the stories he loved as a kid, which I was never very good at that. Because <laughs> my, brain, my brain is, you know, too left of center to really be able to do that. Um, and, you know, you can't be Stan Lee because Stan Lee was Stan Lee, and you can't be Steve Gerber because Steve Gerber was Steve Gerber. Nobody can be them but them, uh, no matter how hard you try. So, uh, you know, so it's always a question of finding your own voice and your own point of view, and those stories really helped me do that. Now, you just touched, you just touched on this, but um, another listener question was, uh, can you tell us some more behind-the-scenes events about the creation of iVampire? Oh, yeah, well, iVampire was, was sort of what I said. Uh, it was very early in my career, and Len Wein, who uh, was my editor and then became really my first real mentor in the business uh, and, and a good friend, uh, he was the first person I had sold. I had sold scripts and worked with Paul Levitz and Jack Harris, wonderful guys, wonderful editors, uh, and and uh, just loved working with them. But Len was the first one that made me feel like maybe I had something unique or special, and he really saw that and really wanted to nurture that, and and really became my mentor. And he was looking for a series for both Weird War Tales and House of Mystery. So for Weird War Tales, I pitched him. Uh, I Vampire, not I Vampire, um, Creature Commandos, which is a crazy series about monsters fighting World War II, which somehow these characters are still out there. And in fact, one of the characters was on Arrow last season, which is bizarre. And then for uh, for House of Mystery, he gave me this title. He said, I Vampire. And first I pitched him Greenberg, and he metaphorically threw me out of the office. And, uh, and then I came back with the concept for what I Vampire ultimately became. And that, you know, those were the first things I ever created that were mine. 
uh, first creator-owned things I, I ever did. I don't know, well, co-owned, I should say, because they're DC characters. But you know, with with incredible input from Len, you know, a writer of extraordinary talents and a great editor uh, who really, really helped me along so much in those early days, and, and uh, in a way that I will never forget. Really, he was he was just such an important part of, of my career, and it was great to be able to create something that was that was my own. Now that that voice, that unique voice that started to come out with Greenberg and with Moonshadow wasn't there yet, you know, but it was still fun to create something that that was brand new and that was that was mine. Okay, uh, another listener question was, um, how did you come up with your pseudonym? Which pseudonym? The Wally Lumbago. Oh. <laughs> right. That's t- t- the short version of that is also very early in my, in my stay at Marvel. Um, I, I did an issue of Star Wars, uh, which dealt with um, the Star Wars characters finding this guy who was once a famous rebel uh, in the rebellion against the Empire, but now he's living in this this sort of other dimensional paradise. He, he's basically fed up with violence, and he's and he's and and he doesn't want anything to do with the war anymore. And the point of the story is that the, that the bad guys basically follow them through this rift, find this planet, and this new character has a choice. He and his followers can either return to their violent ways and fight, or they can die for, their, for a dream of peace to make a statement that violence is not the way. And they choose to die, and they, and, and they, and they basically, without, without fighting, the Empire comes in and destroys them. And the Lucas people did not like this at all. They thought that this made their characters look bad, that these characters would sacrifice themselves and uh, and the Star Wars characters are still fighting. So they had they had the, the issue rewritten so that at the end, Lando Calrissian basically says, and this is the quote, he died for his dream of peace, but he was wrong. <laughs> it's like, great, guys, thanks for letting me make that statement. Plus, my son had just been born, so I named this character after my son. It was Cody Sunchild was the name of the character. So here I am, you know, just starting out in my career, and I'm willing to take any job that comes along, and yet I feel like I've completely corrupted the message of this story. So I, so I put this goofy name on it. And, you know, when you're, when you're growing up with your friends and everybody, you get like, you start inventing silly names and you start calling each other by these names and Wally Lumbago was just this goofy name I had invented when I was goofing around with my friends and that's the name that I slapped on the story what I found out years and years and years later was that the original version of the story without the ending being changed and with my name on it came out in England oh so you know it's just like you know 25 years later, I think they did a piece on uh, comic book resources about it, and they re- they showed the page with the original ending, which I just thought was sensational. So somewhere out there, uh, the original story got out, but that that was that was Wally Lumbago. Yeah, he. Uh, I think that might have been the only story that he he uh, had a name, had his name on. I, I know I, I used to pseudonym on a couple of other dicey stories over the years, but I think that might have been Wally's only appearance. Um, what was it like to uh, write the Defenders? We had a question about it, which was, uh, did you have any further plans for the team before Peter Gillis took over? What were your original plans with Cloud and her origin? And why did you kill Nighthawk off? <laughs> it's, it's always interesting to me when there are these questions about a book I was writing in like the <laughs> early 1980s, and I, I have to pretend that I knew what I was thinking at the time. What I will say about the Defenders, I don't really remember what my plans were about anything, really, at this point. Uh, but I left the book uh, because I was ready to go. I basically had, you know, Defenders had this wonderful tradition of being the non-team. And once once Steve Gerber came along, it had a tradition of being the place where you could go and be as weird and personal as you wanted. And in a way, it was a rehearsal for me 
uh, from, from things like Moonshadow and Greenberg because I was allowed to just sort of follow my muse wherever it led me. And sometimes I fell horribly on my face, and sometimes I did some work that I can still look back on with, with pride. But that was the book that really mattered to me. I poured heart and soul into that one. So it's very gratifying when I see that to, these, to this day that people... That's another book that people rediscovered. I think when it was coming out, I remember seeing a lot of negative things. And now I, I very regularly I see defenders come across uh, the table at, at conventions and people telling me how much that series meant to them. Um, it was a place for me to stretch as a writer uh, and to play, and I got to work with Don Perlin, who was a wonderful uh, wonderful artist who really, really put his heart and soul into the book. And, uh, and uh, what were the other questions about that were specific? Uh, basically, uh, well, why did you kill off Nighthawk? Because it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's as much as I could tell you now, all these years later. I, I don't think it was ever my intention to keep him dead. You know, it was not one of those deaths, uh, you know, like Craven or Aunt May that I really thought, you know, I'm actually going to treat this as if these people are really dead. You know, um, I think I think probably in the back of my mind there would be a way to bring Nighthawk back. Speaking of death of characters, I mean, you you did do the the death of the Red Skull, and yes. I guess and that was another death that I I intended to be the death of the Red Skull. You know, somewhere in your mind that eventually someone's going to bring him back, but I really wanted to treat that really as the death of the Red Skull. No, I was rereading it actually this morning, and I mean, it's still it's still affecting at the end when the Red Skull dies. First of all, what made you decide that you know this was the time to do it as episode issue three hundred? Um, you know, what what was kind of le- in your mind? I, it's hard, obviously, because it's been a long time since it was published. But right. you know, what what was kind of going into you know why you would create this story and uh, kill off Red Skull in this way? Well, this was you know this was a year long storyline that climaxed with issue three hundred and. Speaking of pseudonyms, this is another issue where uh, I put a pseudonym on it. You'll see that the although I have credit for the plot, the script is credited to Michael Ellis, which was another pseudonym of mine, which the editor Mark Grunewald plucked out of an old Monty Python skit for me. Um, I've been working on this story for a year, and the whole idea was to really bring this war that had been going on since the 1940s, which at that point it was 40-something years, uh, to a boil. You know, these two guys old men and, and what happened in the course of the story was that I actually aged them both so they both were old uh, finally coming to their final battle it just seemed like it was time and, and the skull through the course of that story had reached his claws into every aspect of Steve Rogers life threatened everyone that was near and dear to him and what I wanted to do with issue 300 was essentially bury the past and chart a path for the future and the plan was, it was the Captain America 300 was supposed to be a double sized issue and this one I remember very well because of the events that went on around it. The skull would die. Cap wakes up and realizes, you know, uh, his, Cap gets restored to his youth. I, now, apparently I've heard that they've they've done a, a recent storyline currently where Cap is aged. So we did that, you know, way back then. Um, and looks around and says, you know what, I've been doing it this way for 40 years, thinking that I can solve problems by punching somebody in the face, by dropping a building on their head. And what has it gotten me? Everyone I've ever known and loved has almost been killed. This maniac, you know, is finally dead. Uh, I almost died. And what's the point of all this? There has to be another way. So he would, from there, set off on this path trying to figure out, is there another way for me to live my life other than, you know, using my shield to smash someone in the face? Because, you know, as much as we all love these comics, the truth is there's an underlying message in superhero comics. No matter how sophisticated the philosophy and characterization that's laid on top of it, it says, we will solve problems by punching the bad guy in the face. And that's not the truth. 
In fact, it's 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 a terrible lie, um, as anyone who lives in the real world knows. You know. So I wanted to do a story that really explored that, where Cap basically was going to turn his back on violence, try to find another way to be, and in the course of which, he was going to alienate the United States government. He was going to alienate all the other superheroes. Uh, the only allies he was going to find in this cause were going to be Dr. Doom and the Red Skull. I had this really great story worked out, and it was going to climax uh, with Cap being assassinated by the Bucky of the 1950s, who was at that point, I turned him into Nomad, who was Cap's partner, who just you know couldn't handle this and assassinates him. So we were doing the assassination of Captain America like, I don't know, 25 years before they actually did the assassination of Captain America. Very excited about the story. I think it would have been a really, really, especially for its time, Unlike anything that had ever been done before, Mark Greenwald, who was the editor, approved it, and uh, Jim Shooter took one look at it and said, nah, you can't do that. He, it did not mesh with his view of who and what Captain America uh, was. Now, at the time, I was really pissed off. I quit the book. Uh, one of the reasons there was a pseudonym on that issue is because they took a double-sized issue, cut it in half, and then Jim rewrote parts of it. So I put the Michael Ellis pseudonym on it. So at the time, I was upset. You know, I, when I look back on it, you know, uh, from here or even from five or ten minutes afterwards. That was Jim's job. He was the editor-in-chief. He was the custodian of that universe, and he had to make a decision. Did I agree with that decision? No. I think it would have been a great story, and I thought it was totally in character for Steve Rogers to do that. Um, but Jim had to make his own call, and I, and I respect that. Um, when what eventually happened was in 2009, years and years later, because I've been working on that story, trying to uh, take it out of the Marvel Universe, I created my own characters, my own universe, and eventually for IDW did a series called The Life and Times of Savior 28, which took the uh, scaffold of that story and built on that, and uh, again, another project that I consider, certainly in terms of superhero stories, maybe the very best superhero story I've ever done, where I got, because it was in my own universe, I got to say everything I wanted to say exactly the way that I wanted to say it and uh, put all these questions on the table. Hmm. And uh, so anyone that wants to know what was going to happen with that Captain America story, just go pick up a copy of The Life and Times of Savior 28 from IDW and it's all there. Hmm. In fact, I even mirror, the, the, there's, a, there's a scene with the villain in the, in the Savior 28 story that mirrors the moment in the Captain America story where the skull dies and claws his face. I did it very consciously and very intentionally. The same exact thing happens in Savior 28 because I wanted to say this is, you know, we're picking up from where we left off back then. Okay. What was it like working on an Iceman miniseries? You know, that's one, uh, uh, I I really, I was writing the character in the Defenders and uh, really, really liked the character. And in those days, this is how you'd get something new approved. I walked into Jim Shooter's office and said, I'd like to do an Iceman miniseries. He said, okay. And that was it. That was the approval process. You know, these <laughs> days, it's like, you have to go through a lot of red tape to get anything new approved, you know? Uh, so, uh, it was a fun series. I don't think it completely succeeded and I think in some ways it may have failed, but it was fun and it was interesting and, and uh, I know there's not much else I can say about it. Again, you know, that's one where, you know, I always thought of it as, as kind of a flop and a failure, and then I read something someone wrote online, this very long piece about how much they loved it. So you never know. I can't be objective about it. But at the time, I felt like it didn't quite click, and it didn't quite work. Uh, the character worked. I really enjoyed working with the character. Uh, but I didn't feel like the story quite clicked the way I wanted it to. 
Now, obviously, in the mid to late 80s, you become extremely well-known for the Justice League book. And obviously, yes. there was a bunch of questions about that. Okay. Um, I guess the simplest one is, you know, how did the relaunch come about? Because you worked on the book prior to the relaunch. And yes, I worked on, the, um, on the, the end of the Detroit League. Now, when you were working on that, you knew you were going to be relaunching it shortly? I didn't know anything about it, really. Andy no. Helfer just, you know, Jerry Comey had, had left the book. and Well, they knew that, that this Justice League was ending and that there would be a new Justice League coming. But, um, but that's as much as I knew. I, didn't, I had no idea that I would end up working on it. So I just did those, whatever they were. There were a couple of issues to wrap up one of Jerry's stories, and then there was a four-part end of the Detroit League, which was, uh, which was actually a pretty good story, uh, from what I recall. And, um, and then what happened was... I guess Keith, Keith was really dying to do uh, to do Justice League, and he was going to plot it and script it. And then when he started doing it, he had a, an outbreak of insecurity and didn't think that he was ready to actually start scripting a book on his own. Now, I remember looking over what he'd done with the first issue, and I thought he was completely ready. But Keith didn't think he was ready. You know, Keith's a wonderful writer in his own right. Um... And Andy said, well, you want to come in and, and dialogue this? And I'm, I said, you know, what do you need me for? Keith is, you know, perfectly capable of doing this. I had worked with Keith. We were at that same time working on a Dr. Fate miniseries together, so I was well aware of what an incredible creative force he was and remains. Um, but Keith, you know, Keith felt insecure, so they threw, the, they threw the book to me, and I said, okay. You know, I, I took it very, very lightly in the beginning. And which is good because that was what the tone was, uh, and uh, and it took me. I kept trying to quit the book because I kept uh, because it, a it was so easy, it was so much fun. I didn't understand, you know. I, I had this this writer thing in my head. It must be a struggle. It must be difficult, you know. But Keith and I talk about chemistry again, right from the get go. And I would include Andy in that. The three of us, because Andy was such an intimate part of shaping that book. You know, the chemistry between me and Keith, between me, Keith, and Andy, and then you bring in Kevin McGuire, who was just so perfect for that, and all of us just clicked in this magical way, and I woke up one day and went, hey, what am I trying to quit this book for? This is, like, so much fun, and it's a huge hit, and we're making royalties, and people love the book, and we're having fun, and then I just relaxed, and next thing I knew, it was five years later, we had written, you know, Justice League, and Justice League Europe, and Justice League International, and I had done spinoffs with Mr. Miracle, and this one, and that, I mean, we'd done... Just to see. I mean, we just we we did so much material over the course of those five years, and it was it was phenomenal fun. But I have to say, at the time, for all of us, I think it was just another gig. It was a great gig, but it was a gig. And it wasn't until ten years later, when we came back together for I can't believe it's not the Justice League, that the three of us, me, Keith, and Kevin, kind of all went, "Wow, this is what we do together is really special." We honestly had never really realized it. <laughs> Until 10 years later. So it gives you an idea of really how stupid we all are. That we kind of went, this, this is a good thing. We have to keep doing this. And so we've all, in one configuration or another, kept working together since then. Now, with I, I, kind of dovetailing on that with some of the other questions from a listener, um, you know, the fact that you know, those issues were a lot of fun to read, was that a, a good reflection of the atmosphere, and I guess, in which you were creating them? And I guess the answer would be yes. Uh, wait, run that by me again. I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Uh, the question was, you've kind of answered it, was that uh, the issues were a lot of fun to read in Justice League. And oh, the question was, was that a reflection of the atmosphere in which they were created? 
Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Although, you know, people have this image, you know, when they see uh, my name and Keith's name together, that we're somehow like in the same room writing together, you know, it was never <laughs> that way. And in fact, in those days, you know, we'd get on the phone once in a while, maybe, we'd see each other up at the office, we'd go up on Fridays when the check came down, and Andy would take us out to lunch, and we'd chat. But Keith wrote the plot, and I always say 90% of the time, I had no clue what was going to be in the plot till it arrived at my door. I'd sit down and script and make up whatever crazy stuff I wanted to make up. Sometimes I'd change the whole story in the course of the dialogue. Keith would look at what I did and build on that and take it off in some unexpected direction and throw it back to me. But we were working in what I call glorious isolation, you know? We were, we were not like a writing team working in the same room. Um, and now, although that's true in terms of the fact that we're never working in the same room, when Keith and I worked together, we were, you know, we were on the phone. I probably talked to Keith more than anybody else in the business these days because we're always talking about the stories and he'll bounce something off me and I'll bounce something back at him. And, um, but still, we still work the same way because Keith may call me up and say, this is what I'm going to do in the next issue. What do you think? And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Then he'll go off and he'll completely change it by the time I get the plot. And then I'll, I'll start to dialogue and I'll change everything that he had, you know, and that's the fun. And one of the great things about working with Keith is that there was never any artistic ego there. Somebody else, if they give you a plot and you start adding things and changing things, they'll freak out because they're so, they so wanted to be exactly the story that they plotted. And Keith was never like that. He, I think he understood very quickly that it was the give and take between the two of us that was going to make this book special. And whether he realized it consciously or unconsciously, I don't know. But there was never a push-pull that way. Um, so, you know, it, uh, I loved working with Keith then. I love working with Keith even more now. He is one of the single most creative human beings I have ever met. So full of ideas. I always use the metaphor of uh, when my kids were little, uh, they had, you ever see these bubble bears that kids have? It's like a, it's a, it's a plastic bear. And you squeeze the bear's belly and the head pops up and bubbles come out. <laughs> And that's the way I always think of Keith. You squeeze his belly, his head pops up, and a hundred ideas come out. And if you don't like those ideas, you know, wait 30 seconds. Squeeze his belly again and a hundred more are going to come out because he's just so creative and so full of wonderful ideas. Uh, uh, along the same lines, the, the same uh, listener asked, with the success of some of the darker-toned comics of the late 80s, what was behind the decision to put a welcome emphasis on fun and humor in those issues of Justice League? You know, the funny thing is there really wasn't that much of a decision involved. We, we would never said, at least no one ever said to me, we're going to do a lighthearted book. And if you look at the early issues, it's pretty much straightforward action adventure with a little bit of humor. You know, Keith, by his nature, is, 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 is a funny guy, a snarky guy. And that's there in that. And I picked up on that and I built on that. And then Keith built on that. And it kind of went back and forth. But we were not consciously trying to do a response to the dark uh, comic books of the late 1980s. It, was not, it, w- it wasn't that conscious. I was just picking up on what he was doing. He picked up on what I did. Andy fed the fire. Kevin, then you had Kevin, who, you know, was responsible for so much of the success of that book. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day. I mean, no one had ever done acting on a comic book page the way that Kevin did it and still continues to do it. In fact, he's better than ever these days. Um, he was absolutely unique in a genre unto himself. And when you have a book that depends on character interaction and witty repartee, to have an artist like Kevin who could really emphasize that through facial expressions and gestures, you know, no one had ever been able to draw conversations the way that Kevin did. And that was such an important part. Uh, of what made that book a success and again I don't know whether Andy Helfer was doing voodoo or how he figured it out because you know Kevin was very new Uh, I was not thought of as a guy who did comedy stuff 
And then Andy had the wisdom to put us all together and 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 make this magical chemistry happen. And um, uh, to this day, I'm very grateful because those stories have really lasted. You know, I was at conventions in Spain and Greece last year, and I can't tell you how many issues of Justice League came across the table. That those stories really went out across the world, and and they mean so much to people, and it's very gratifying to see that. Where did the inspiration for the relationship that would uh, form between uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle come from? It came from Booster Gold and Blue Beetle. (laughs) (laughs) It's like what happens is, you know, Keith might throw these characters together in a scene or two and set it up, and then I get them talking to each other, and we discover in the writing that there's something magical happening between these two characters. So I really mean that the characters really... In the best of all possible worlds, the characters lead you through the story. You don't try to create... It wasn't like, oh, we'll put Beetle and Booster together and create this great team. They'll be like the Abbott and Costello of the Justice League. It didn't happen like that. They were in the team. They had some scenes together. And we began to see that there was something there. And Keith picked up on that and built that into the plots. And I picked up on that and built it, you know, expanded on that in the scripts. And so the characters themselves really are, are what did it and what made it. Okay. Now, this, this question is more speculative in nature, but uh, the question was, if the DC's New 52 hadn't happened, do you think you, Keith, and Kevin would still be making Bwahaha miniseries? The New 52 hadn't happened. I don't know if the New 52 had anything to do with, with it stopping. Um, you know, there was that period earlier than that where it seemed like they were killing all our characters left and right and that they didn't want anything vaguely humorous creeping into those comics, you know? Um but uh, you know, Kevin was actually originally slated to be the artist on uh, on Justice League three thousand, and there were some behind the scenes things that happened that had, were not you know had nothing to do with Kevin personally. That just that just didn't happen, which I still feel bad about because it, it would have been great. It would have been great, and the work that he was doing on the first issue was just phenomenal. And I would work with Kevin again tomorrow if the opportunity arose. Um, but uh, I, you know, I think there was. There was an attitude at DC that maybe what we did, they didn't want to do that anymore. But then we sort of crept back in. One of my favorite things that we ever did was we did a little Metal Men strip in the back of Doom Patrol, the three of us, which is one of my all-time favorite things that the three of us have ever done together. And, and uh, you know, we did Defenders of Marvel, and, and, and I would love for another opportunity for, for us to work with Kevin again, because, again, he's absolutely unique. Um, so... Yeah, you know, and then and then I think finally you, you see that you know past year or two humor has crept back into DC again. People are not afraid. Uh, my friend Heath Corson just did this Bizarro book. Uh, people are not afraid to be funny. It seemed like for a while they were afraid to be funny, but I think they got over it. Now, what what kind of led you back to DC? I mean, in the New Fifty Two kind of era. I mean, you, you wrote Larfleys, uh, Trinity of Sin. Like, what what was kind of your? What, how did they get you to come back? You know, it's just one of those things that kind of happened, and I think uh, you, know, you know Keith might have. I think Keith might have been the doorway there. He, he just was talking to Dan DiDio or somebody and said, "Hey, you know, I think you should be using Demetrius on some of this stuff." And what, what you find as a freelancer, which is why as a freelancer, I always say the operative word is free. You know, make sure you're working for a lot of different uh, companies and um, and and doing you know working in television, working in comics. I, I've written books. You know, you want you got to keep it going because what I see is. Time goes by and maybe, oh, DC kind of forgets you exist, or Marvel forgets you exist, or some other company. I'm not just singling out DC. And then suddenly you do something, or someone reminds them, they go, oh, yeah. And then the next thing I knew, 
I was back at DC with like more work that I could handle. You know, I was working, you know, doing Laura Flees with Keith and Justice League Dark and Phantom Stranger and, you know, uh, just a lot, a lot of work. And uh, so it, it's just the nature of the beast when you're a freelancer. I remember a few years back I had uh, done something, done some little Spider-Man thing for Marvel and I got a call from her. Like, it, it reminded them, oh, yeah, this was really good. It reminded me how good you are. It's like, well, you know, there's like 30 years worth of material <laughs> out there. You could open up any of them and it could remind you how good I am. But that's just the nature of the beast when you're a freelancer. I don't hold it against them. Everybody in the editors are just dealing with what's in front of their face day after day. And it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this, you have to constantly be out there um, promoting yourself and reminding people that you exist. But also, as I said, making sure that you're not putting any of your eggs in one basket, because I've seen it too many times over the years. Oh, I'm so happy working here at, at this company and everything's going so well. And then that's Monday and Tuesday, something happens unexpected. And, you know, you've just been thrown out the window when you're on the street. You know, so you always have to have other doors open. You always have to have other work going. And I always make sure that I'm always working on something else, whether it's a TV project or a book project, or if you're working for this company, make sure you're working for that company. And, uh, like right now, you know, I've, I've got my, 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 Keith and I are working on Scooby at DC. I've got a creator-owned thing uh, called The Adventures of Augusta Wind, uh, which is a sequel to a series we did a couple of years ago at IDW. I've got another creator-owned uh, thing in the works. I'm working on this TV pilot, and you just, you just keep, you keep it moving. You got to keep it moving. I would call it tap dancing on quicksand. You got to tap dance really, really fast so you don't sink, and you have to tap dance really well so they can go, oh, look how, well, he really, he's a good dancer. Let's hire him, you know? And the truth is, you know, I do these, I do these writing workshops. In fact, I've got one coming up in July, if anyone's interested. Uh, it's a full weekend workshop, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, you can go to my website, jmdmateus.com, and get all the, uh, all the information there. And one of the things that always astonishes people is when I talk about this aspect of, of the business, because they look at me and they go, God, you've been doing this for so long. You've had such a long, successful career. You know, they think there must be no struggle. Well, there's always struggle when you're a freelancer. You're always having to reinvent yourself constantly. And there's always rejection. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't mean that the next project is going to go or it may take five years for it to go or 10 years you know save your 28 took 25 years um and and then i watched their eyes kind of like get this confused glazed look because they can't fathom it and and the example i always use i remember reading uh, an introduction that ray bradbury wrote in one of his uh short story collections and this was like later you know much later in his life when he had been ray bradbury the legend for many many decades and he said, oh, this is the first time this story's ever seen print because I, you know, I, tried, I pitched it to this magazine or that magazine, and nobody bought it. And that's the truth. You know, if Ray Bradbury's getting rejected, even after he's Ray Bradbury, we're all getting rejected along the way. It's just the nature of being a freelancer. It's just the way it goes. And, you're always, and I always say creativity is the best revenge. You have to move on to the next project. You have to come up with the next idea. And you also have to not let go of those ideas that people have rejected because I've seen time and time again, uh, especially with a lot of my creator-owned stuff, that it takes sometimes takes a long time to get these projects out there. People, Something in, 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 in the group mind and the zeitgeist, people aren't ready, they don't understand it, and one day all of a sudden some editor reads it and goes, oh, this is great. It happened with Savior 28. It started as a Captain America story in the 80s. I kept reworking it. I'd go out and I'd pitch it. People didn't get it. I'd go away with it for a couple of years. I'd rework it. I'd pitch it. Wouldn't sell it. And then I pitched it to IDW in 2009, and it's the only time it ever happened. 
I pitched it in the morning. It was approved in the afternoon. Oh, wow. Uh, so after 25 years, I got an instant approval. But so, so the, the, you know, the freelance life is a crazy life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a great joy and it's been overall, it's been a pretty good career and it's continuing to be. And plus that's just on a human level. I got to be home and, and be here for my kids every day. They knew I was right here in my office. And if I had to go take them to school or take them to dance class or, or do anything that they needed, I was always here to do it. So it's a great, it's a great lifestyle. But you need to have a pretty, a pretty strong nervous system. And some people just, you know, they can't handle it because you're always dealing with uncertainty. doesn't matter how successful you are. You're always dealing with uncertainty. Now, I, wanna, I, I can't not talk to you about Spider-Man because okay. – I'm a huge fan of you. Wrap up after that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, but just before the Spider-Man question, I want to ask: What? How do you seem to really enjoy the character of Vermin? Um, yep. You created the character. You used him, obviously, in Captain America and then in Spider-Man. What was it about Vermin that you really enjoyed writing? You know, at, at the beginning, I, I, it was just you know, it wasn't anything very profound. I just cooked up the character. I don't know where he came from or why. Uh, and we used him in this Captain America issue, and it was the idea of this man, who this this man rat who lived in the sewers. I guess he was sort of what I began to realize, especially as I was writing him in Spider Man. He's the embodiment of the part of the psyche that all of us encounter at some points in our lives, where we think that we are small, powerless, and worthless. You know, and that's who Vermin is. And of course, he's 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 very angry, and he's violent, and he's dangerous. Uh, but he's really, it's all motivated from the fact that he feels very small and worthless because he, let's face it, he lives in a sewer, you know? Um, I didn't think about it that profoundly when it was in Captain America, but I think that's where the character came from. And then when we were doing Craven's Last Hunt, because it was me and Mike Zack, and I needed another element in the story, I needed an element uh, that could contrast Peter's approach to being Spider-Man with Craven's approach to being Spider-Man. And, uh, so I said, oh, I'll use this character that Zek and I uh, created. And it was a perfect character because he's such a, he's the kind of character that really provokes very strong reactions in people. So to see Peter who could face this darkness and be compassionate versus uh, Craven who just looked at it as something to be destroyed, it, it really provided a really wonderful um, contrast in their approach to being Spider-Man uh, to, yeah, to being Spider-Man and then when I took the character into uh, my run on Spectacular Spider-Man with Sal Buscema another extraordinary collaborator one of my favorite uh, artists and people on the planet um, we did a story called The Child Within which really really peeled back the layers of Vermin's psyche and explored what it, what, what it meant to be him and where this all came from and I think it was one of the very first mainstream comic book stories that dealt uh, with sexual abuse, and uh, I think dealt with it very strongly, and I hope very tastefully. Um, I'm very proud of that story, and I still don't understand why Marvel has yet to collect the two years of Spectacular Spider-Man that I did with Sal in one big edition, because I think that's um, some of the best work uh, I've ever done in, in my superhero work. I'm very, very proud of that run, and working with Sal was just like magic. It's interesting that you had a great relationship with Sal, but then you chased his brother off of a book. <laughs> there you go. You know, you just don't know. It goes back to that chemistry thing I was talking about. There just wasn't that chemical reaction with John. And with Sal, it was another one of those ones where I sent in the plot, the art came in, and I could see from the first panel, he totally got it. He understood it. And the flow of his storytelling, it was just so great to work with him. He is... Um, 
Uh, on one level, you know, he's considered a legend, but another le level, I think he's still undervalued. He is such a good artist. He can draw like nobody's business, and he's a phenomenal storyteller. You don't have to worry about clarity. You can say the same thing about Mike Zeck. You know, you don't worry about clarity in these stories when you have guys like that drawing them. One of the reasons why Craven's Last Hunt could go so deep into those internal monologues is because everything I asked for in terms of the outward action and the emotion, the, 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 emo the surface emotions of the characters was right there on the page. I didn't have to explain anything. Same with Sal. So you're free to go to the second level and get into their heads and get into these interior monologues and not have to explain, oh, I'm climbing the building now and I'm very upset, you know, because it's all there in the pictures, you know. And sometimes with some artists, you have to explain that because they can't capture that on the page. And guys like Zach and guys like Sal, it's just second nature to them and it makes it such a pleasure, especially when you're working plot first. You look at those pictures, it's all there. My, my, my favorite example is the end of Spectacular Spider-Man 200 when Harry Osborn dies. Um, and I had planned to write all this melodramatic stuff for those last few pages. The pages come in from Sal. You know, I described it all in the plot for him in detail. And everything I asked for in the plot was there on the page. And if you look at the last two or three pages of that story, there's not a word on the page. Because Sal captured everything I, I described to him in the plot. I didn't have to say anything. And that's, that's the art of collaboration at its best. With Craven's Last Hunt, how did how did you kind of pitch that story, and how did you kind of come on and do it? Because I mean, that was a big deal at the time that you know all three Spider books told one story over the course of two months. Yeah, it was a story that had been percolating uh, for a while with different characters, and I'm, I, I almost did it as a Batman graphic novel. But talk about again rejection. I uh, I pitched uh, two different versions of it, I think, as a Batman graphic novel, and got rejected both times <laughs> for a variety of reasons. It was originally going to be a story with Batman and the Joker, as opposed to Spider-Man and Craven. And I and then I took the seeds of that Batman Joker story and did a story uh, for Legends of the Dark Knight called Going Sane, which I'm also very proud of. But so you know, there I am getting rejected with this idea, and then they offered me and Zach a spectacular Spider-Man to do that as a monthly. And Jim Owsley was the uh, was the editor at that point, and I and and I thought about it, and I thought, wow, this would be great. I'll take this Batman idea and I'll work it on it. And I'll, I'll turn it into a Spider-Man story. And as I'm working on it, I'm seeing, oh my God, you know, Peter had just married Mary Jane. This is the perfect character for this story. And I, I always say this: stories have lives of their own. They have their own timing. And there was a reason why the other versions of this story got rejected because it had to be that story with that character with that artist. It just had to be in the universe kept me at bay until it had all the elements in place, you know? And so I pitched it to Owsley, and I originally pitched it with a with an original villain. It wasn't Craven. And he loved it and approved it and said, yeah, let's do it. And then I was home one day flipping through the, the Marvel Universe books, and I came across this entry about Craven and started to read it. Craven was not a character I'd ever given a second thought to. And I always thought he'd sort of been treated as something of a joke, this guy in pedal pushers, you know, hunting Spider-Man. I always thought of him as very silly. Um... And they mentioned that Craven, to bring us back to Dostoevsky, they, they mentioned that Craven was Russian, which I had never heard that. I don't know if it was in a story where the guy who was writing the entry just made it up to amuse himself. <laughs> and something clicked in my brain. And in that moment, I got this whole vision of who Craven was, where he came from, why he did this. And I called up Alsley and I said, forget the new villain I just created, which Al, who Alsley loved. I want to use Craven. So he said, okay, use Craven. And then uh, by the time we actually were working on the book, uh, Alsley had left staff and Jim Salakrup was the editor, and he was the guy who very brilliantly said, you can't have Spider-Man dead and buried in one book, and spectacular Spider-Man, and have him running around an amazing Spider-Man. It's going to take all the tension out of the story. 
and, there were, and I guess there were three Spider-Man titles at the time. Web of Spider-Man was the third. And he said, let's do it running through all three books for two months, which had never been done before. And that idea was, was Sal Krups, and, and he was the first one that ever did it. Uh, he's also the one, I, I, the name of the story I had was called Fearful Symmetry, and he's the one who added Craven's Last Hunt to that, and that's the name that everyone knows now. So, uh, you know, all, all, all hail Jim Salakup for those two decisions. <laughs> and, and that's how that happened. Now, was um, right from the beginning, did you always know that the villain, before it was Craven, the, the villain was going to die at the end? Before it was Craven, no. Uh, maybe I, I, no, I, you know. Again, I'm not quite sure. It may have been with the new villain that I created that that I had that in mind. But certainly with now, with Craven, it's solidified because Craven to me there was a a certain sort of that Ernest Hemingway macho guy. And I remember being a kid reading about Ernest Hemingway's suicide. How he put this rifle in his mouth and blew his brains out. And it was like one of those like horrifying images that stayed in my head. And I think that was the Hemingway thing, which I don't think I've ever talked about or mentioned to anybody. So. You, here we go. It's the first time. <laughs> it was the Hemingway thing that really, you know, it's kind of stuck in my subconscious. So that when I was writing this story with Craven in it, I thought, whether consciously or not, to give him a Hemingway-esque death. So that's where that came from. Now, I think in the introduction to the old trades, you you mentioned that um, some people were, I guess, upset about the uh, the use of suicide. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, reading it collected, it makes sense and it's it's tragic, but it really works. What can you kind of say about it? Yeah, I mean, people people said that we've got Tom DeFalco got a letter. Tom DeFalco was editor in chief at this point. Got a letter from some suicide prevention group accusing us of glorifying suicide. Um, and I and, and I, I don't know how. I think maybe some people took it that Craven died an honorable death. You know, he proved what he had to prove and he killed himself. But the very last thing he says is this repeated refrain through the whole story. They said my mother was insane. He's haunted by the fact that his mother was had a, had a mental breakdown, and I think she might have killed herself in an institution somewhere. So it was never presented in a way like, oh, oh, this is my glorious suicide. He was a, he was out of his mind, and this was, a tra- just as you said, a tragic ending. But it really, really distressed me uh, that anybody could interpret it that way. So I thought about it, and that's why we did a, a story called Soul of the Hunter, which was uh, uh, like a 48-page sequel or 45-page, I forget how long it was, to Craven's Last Hunt, where we dealt with the, with, the, with the concept of Craven's suicide and the fact that Peter, being Peter, was haunted, was you know, riddled with guilt, because you know, if you're Peter Parker, you're always riddled with guilt, uh, about the fact that he could not save Craven. He went out to stop Vermin, and by the time he got back, Craven was dead. He killed himself. So we dealt with that in, in that story. But that suicide was certainly not presented to be a glorious ending for Craven. It was meant to be uh, a truly tragic one. It's interesting that you're, you're writing, you know, a very in-depth, you know, very uh, meaningful story about, you know, suicide and, and the questions of, of identity, while at the same time writing the humorous Justice League. So how did you kind of juxtapose that inside your head as a writer? Yeah, uh, you know, actually, Justice League started, I think, probably started that right right when Craven's Last around the same time that Craven's Last Time came out, so they probably did overlap at some point. Um, but that that's kind of goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. Uh, you, you have to diversify to stay sane. If all I did was write mainstream superhero comics, I would have jumped out the window years ago. You know, the fact that we got to do funny stuff with... with uh, with uh, Justice League, the fact that I got to do the kind of epic and vertigo, very personal, spiritual, philosophical projects that I've gotten to do that way, that I've done autobiography like Brooklyn Dreams, that I've done K 
kid-friendly material like Abadazad and the Stardust Kid and, and the series Augusta Wind that I'm doing now for IDW. Um, and then have branched out to write novels, to write television, to write animation and live action and all this. You know, you're a writer. You have, you know, be as diverse as you can. Don't lock yourself into one thing. Now, I didn't, in the beginning, I didn't do it consciously. It just sort of happened. I had this urge to do Moonshadow, to do something more personal. And that worked. So I did something else and Justice League came along. But then I, you know, I sort of took a step back and realized, yes, this is the model. This is what you have to do to, to have a career. You have to diversify. You have to feed all the creative voices inside you in order to stay sane and to keep growing creatively. Because if all I'd done was keep doing, like at that point, Marvel superheroes, I would not be the writer that I was today, that I am today. A question about... It's <laughs> <so> worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, a question about Spider-Man then. So, I mean, you wrote Craven's Last Hunt, and then there's basically a period of almost four years before you start your run on Spectacular. I mean, originally, as you said, you were you know, coming on to, to write this story. What what happened that prevented you from kind of working on it regularly right away? What was why? Yeah, the... um, you, you just you just the freelance game. I, I had gone over to DC. I was doing Justice League, which really really took up a lot of time, plus a lot of other things like you know Doctor Fate and Mister Miracle and Forever People. And I, I just got I just got very deep into the DC thing, and um, I was still on good terms with uh, Tom DeFalco, I believe, was editor in chief at Marvel and. Tom and I are buddies, but it just, you know, the opportunity didn't open up, and I think I went back to Spider-Man sort of as Justice League was wrapping, wrapping up, and I was just up there visiting one day, and Danny Fingeroth, another good buddy and a wonderful editor, just said, hey, you want to write one of these Spider-Man books, and he gave me a choice of Web of Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man, and he mentioned that Sal would be drawing Spectacular Spider-Man, I went, Sal, oh, I'll do that one, you know, and then, and then I sort of, for a few years after that, I was mainly... Uh, Marvel, you know, and in fact, through the through most of the '90s, after that, I you know I would do I would do my Vertigo work to do the personal stuff. Ninety percent of my superhero work, if not ninety nine percent, was uh, I, in fact I was under exclusive contract for a good part of the '90s. So you know I would do the superhero stuff for Marvel. I would do the Vertigo stuff to do my, my more personal projects, and uh, it's just the way it goes when you're a freelancer. It wasn't like oh well I will never do any Spider Man again. I and I will now work for DC. It's just so happened that Justice League took off, and next thing I know, I'm writing eight thousand Justice League books and spin off <laughs> books, and you know, and and Doctor Fate and all these other things. So just it just sort of happens. You, you go you go where the flow is. That's why I, you know some years I see I'm doing more more animation work than I'm doing comic book work. Other years I'm doing more comic book work than animation work. And, and it just, you, you, you go where the, where, the, where the wave of the work carries you and where your enthusiasms carry you. And then, of course, along the way, what you have to do constantly is create those opportunities. Because one thing I would say to any writer out there, any aspiring writer, is you have to create the opportunities. No one came to me when I was doing Moonshadow said, go do something deeply personal that will expand you as a writer. I had to stake that ground myself. And the, the big projects, the ones that really changed me as a writer, for the most part, you know, Justice League International was just an accident, a beautiful accident that happened. But for the most part, there are things that I just, I had to create for myself. I had to challenge myself, and I had to go knock on the door and say, I want to do this, I'm going to do this. So you have to create challenges for yourself, while at the same time, you have to feed your family. So you follow that wave where the work leads you. When you came back on Spectacular, I mean, The Child Within is an amazing story, but like that's right out of the gate, that's your big return. Had it been something that had been percolating, the idea of using Vermin again and of, of bringing Harry Osborn back to the brink? Um, 
you know, interestingly enough, same thing that happened with Craven's Last Hunt. I was going to do a Batman story called The Child Within. And um, I think I was going to do it in Legends of Dark Knight. I was going to involve Two-Face. And, um, you know, it would have gone off in a different direction. But the basic idea of getting to the wounded children at the core of Batman and Two-Face and whatever other character I was going to bring in. And I think what happened at that time that Archie Goodwin was in the middle of a graphic novel that had to do something to do with child abuse uh, called Night Cries, I think. I, I never, I, don't, I didn't read the story, so I don't really even know what it was. But he, he felt like there shouldn't be another Batman story happening at the same time that he was doing this story, that it would somehow um, impact that story. And, there were, you know, I really, really respected Archie both personally and professionally, so I very happily said, okay, we'll hold off on that. And then, so when I got this invitation to work on Spectacular Spider-Man, that story was percolating in the back of my head and then what had happened was I believe Kurt Busiek had done uh, a few issues uh, before I came on and there was just a little little panel or two with Harry where you saw that he was starting to lose it again I don't remember whether he heard his father's voice or whatever it was but you got the sense that the facade was starting to crack with Harry and I thought well that's really interesting maybe I'll pick up on that and and that could play really nicely into this, you know, inner child story that I want to do. And, you know, Vermin obviously is a character that meant something to me and a perfect character to explore that issue with. So it all just sort of, and that's the way all these things happen. There's these little ricochets, you know. You have an idea for a Batman story, but no, it's going to be a Spider-Man story. Oh, and you see a germ in another story that you could pull into that and plays into your themes. And then next thing you know, you're off and running, and then a story like that happens, which is... You know, in a lot of ways, as a story that means something to me, means something more to me uh, than Craven's Last Hunt does. I think The Child Within is a really, really um, powerful and personal story. I've always been surprised it hasn't been collected. You and me both. Because <laughs> it's, uh, it's phenomenal you know, stuff. I don't understand it. It seems like, you know, I see things of mine get collected that I would think would never be collected, that maybe I, I, I don't even want to see collected. And then I see a run like that, uh, which really, really means a lot to me. And I think that they're really superb stories. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of stories in mind that, that, that are crap. And if you talk to me personally and off the record, I will admit that they just didn't work and they weren't good. But I know when the good stories are good. And that run in general and that story in particular was really, really good. Some of the best work I've ever done with mainstream superheroes. So, Marvel, if you're out there, please collect that stuff. It's time. When, when did you know you were going to kill off Harry Osborn? Like, I mean, it, you can kind of see fingerprints that, like, it's it's obviously leading to a, a, a tragic conclusion, but when did you know that that's where you were going to go? You know, I don't know if I knew it until that issue, to be perfectly honest. You know, I know it, this whole thing was building to a boil, but um, it wasn't like, I didn't map the story out and go, and when it's over, Harry's going to be dead. It just sort of, again, the story leads you, the characters lead you, they make surprising choices, they do things that you don't expect and at least when, when things are working right, that's the way writing goes. You know, sometimes it's pulling teeth. But when it's really going well, it's just like that. I, I always say, it's like, it has nothing to do with me. I'm just lucky enough to be the guy that's transcribing it, you know? And, um, and I think that's the way it went with the Harry story. That story just came to a boil. And, and sometimes, as literally as I'm writing the story, I'm watching the events happen on the page. Oh, that happened? I didn't know that was going to happen. That's incredible. Harry's going to die. I didn't know Harry was going to die. And the next thing you know, that's what happens. And off you go. So it wasn't 
a plan. Now, you could say that the unconscious mind was planning it all along and probably go through that whole story and see little signs and hints that that's where it was going, but it wasn't conscious on my part. So much of this comes from the unconscious or from what I call the world of story, which I believe there's like a, a dimension out there filled with juicy stories and we get picked by the stories to tell them, you know? So so that's what happened with Harry. It's interesting that, you know, uh, Spectacular 200 is a, you know, an intimate story about the struggle between these two men. And then the following issue, you're part of a big crossover as part of Maximum Carnage. What was it like working on a crossover like that? Crossovers for the most part occasionally there have been a few that I've actually really enjoyed for the most part I find them sort of inhibiting and uh, you know you you're sort of doing your chapter and but you're part of this bigger thing and you know the fun part is usually getting a bunch of people in the room you know four or five writers in a room and editors throwing ideas around but in in a general way I'm much happier when I'm off on my own telling my own story as opposed to having to fit this piece into a larger puzzle. Now, it's not always that way. I did a thing at DC a couple of years ago. Um, it was part of the Forever Evil thing, and it ran through all the supernatural books at DC. And um, I don't even remember what it was called, but hey, it's okay. <laughs> but the great thing about that, it was just two writers. I was writing two of the books. Ray Fox was writing two of the books. And so it wasn't like 1,800 people. They left, they left, they left us to put this story together, just the two of us. And Ray and I got along really, really well. We had a lot of fun. And as with many crossovers, I think it went on too long because they, they told us up front that it had to be like 18 parts, you know, uh, which I think is too long for anything. Um, but that said, I really loved working with Ray on it, and, I, and it was a big, fun story that allowed us to, to really create something that felt a little more personal. Uh, but a lot of times these crossovers just feel like... You know, it feels forced to me a lot of the times. But that's just me. A lot of people are really, really good at it. Uh, and I'm just, I don't think I'm as good at it as other people. Um, you know, we, when we were doing uh, the Clones saga, we used to have such a great time sitting in the room, putting the story together. But I always found it frustrating going home, writing chapter two of that month's four-part story. Hmm. And, uh, and that's why I eventually left. One of the reasons why I eventually left, because I just got tired of writing chapter three or chapter three or whatever it was. And then sometimes, you know, what it, what it also does, you know, you map it out, and it kind of kills spontaneity. And a couple of times I'd go home and write my chapter, and I'd get this great idea, and I'd put it in, and then poor Tom DeFalco, who's writing the next chapter, go, well, I've already written my chapter. I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, you have to find some way to address that in his chapter. So you can't, you know, it kind of held you back from having, while you were writing, from having spontaneous ideas. What I loved about it is that I wasn't alone in a room, just me wrestling with the story. When we were working on the Clone Saga, we had so much fun. It was a bunch of writers that really liked and respected each other. We would sit there for hours at these meetings and laugh and throw stories around and had a great time. So, you know, my, my leaving that had nothing to do with the people involved. It just had to do with the frustrations of the creative process. Now, I, I love Amazing Spider-Man 400. I know a lot of people do. Um, what was it like creating that comic? That's a big one. Yeah, that was a big one, and it was one of those things that, um, and then, then I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to have to go when we're done with this, okay. because I have some things I need to take care of, I apologize. Um, and you can cut out the part with me saying that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we knew that we were trying to shake the books up. There was a perception before the Clone Saga 
that uh, the Spider-Man books had gotten a little too quiet and stayed. And uh, this was the era of the big event, you know, so we were looking for events and things to shake up the books. And I, I thought, well, you know, for so many years we've had this relationship of Peter and Aunt May. Aunt May's always sick and on the verge of dying, and she never does. And, and I loved the character. It's one of those characters that, uh, before I wrote her, I never really gave her a second thought. And then as soon as I start to write her, I began to see layers and levels in Aunt May that, that I never really guessed were there. A uh, very, very uh, strong, powerful woman beneath this sort of facade of the, of the, of the neurotic worry wart, you know? <laughs> so I really fell in love with the character. Um, but I thought it would be an important thing and, and, and have something important to say uh, that we're moving off in a new direction if Aunt May died because the plan was to wrap up the clone saga rather quickly as opposed to the way it went on and on and on and then have Ben Riley step in and be the new Spider-Man relaunch those books with a new supporting cast, new villains we really were going to start fresh and we thought that one of the ways of indicating to the readers that we were really going to change things was to have uh, the death of Aunt May and I remember being on the phone. I was out in L.A. on a business uh, trip, and my wife was there with me. And I was talking to Howard Mackey, and she was sitting in the room listening to me going, yeah, we got to kill the old lady. She's got to die. And it sounded like two hitmen, you know, <laughs> plotting the hit. Um, and we presented this idea to, 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 the, um, to, the, to the other writers. I remember I, I explained the whole story while Howard did an imitation of Aunt May's, you know, life monitor beeping and flatlining, you know, um, which, of course, it never, she didn't actually die that way in the end. But I thought it was an important thing, and, and I convinced Danny Fingroth that we should do that. And it ended up being, again, one of those Spider-Man stories that I'm incredibly proud of. And um, one of my, my fondest memories is get, uh, getting a phone call from John Romita Sr., who was like, that's my Spider-Man, the Romita Sr. Spider-Man, you know, to say how much he loved the story, and it was one of the few comic book stories he'd ever read that made him cry. Well, you know, that alone was worth everything. It was worth a whole career to get that phone call, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's really where that came from. And, of course, uh, she came back sooner than expected. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the story still exists, and you can go back and read it, and, uh, and it's still there, and it's still one that I'm very proud of. The emotion is still real in that book. I mean, I, what I always liked about it was the fact that, you know, you, you guys didn't go the easy route. She didn't die because of anything Peter did. She died because she was old. And that and that I always felt very natural in that, you know, Peter can't blame himself for this one. Um, and I thought that was nice because it would be too easy to make it something that is somehow his fault that he could, you know, beat, him up for, beat himself up for. Instead, it was just she died because she was an, an older person. And that's that's how life works. Right, and part of that idea was just kind of what I said before. It's like, we've seen Aunt May almost die so many times. Oh, my God, she's in the hospital again. Uh, and I thought, you know, well, maybe it's time that, that you know, she does. Everyone's ex- going to expect her to get better. Well, wouldn't that be something uh, if she really does die this time? And then there, there was that, you know, wonderful scene on the roof that I think some people really loved and some people didn't, where she explains that she's known for a long time. She knew exactly who he was. She knew he was Spider-Man. She knew what he was doing, and she was proud of him, you know, and that was a great moment. Yeah, I think the story would work very differently if that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It kind of yes. needs to be there to really drive it home more so. And, yeah. to, and, to, and to let him move on after she passes, because I guess that way there's a bit of closure. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that was one of those things that I don't think I, 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 I had had hints. And again, it sounds funny, writing some other stories with Aunt May in them where I got this sense, as I'm writing the book... Oh, she knows more than she's letting on. 
and, and, and it's the character telling you that. It's not me deciding, I'd like to do a story where it turns out that Aunt May knows and da 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 It's not that way. It doesn't work that way. Aunt May let me know that she knew. And I kept getting those hints, and then it was time to write that story. It all just came out, and it came out from her. So that was really uh, one of those wonderful moments where, the, again, where the character, the character leads the writer. What inspired you to use the, um, the, the lines from Peter Pan? I'm just a Peter Pan geek. I've always loved that story. Uh, that's what we were talking earlier about childhood stories that imprint and never go away. And Peter Pan, both the Disney version and that classic Mary Martin version that was done on live television back in the 60s or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which you can still get on DVD today, um, always fascinated me. I always loved it. And and those lines are, are so magical, you know, second to the right and straight on till morning, and can be applied in so many ways that it just seemed it just seemed like the perfect thing, and uh, so that was my Peter Pan obsession creeping out. My last question, I guess, about Amazing Spider-Man 400 is: you, after she passes, you you kind of did the th- same thing from Spectacular 200, where you had a lot of uh, panels that, where there was no dialogue. Was that always the plan, or was it because Bagley just knocked it out of the park? But same thing, you know. I, I mean, all that was there in the plot, and I could have schmaltzed it up quite a bit, you know, given what had just happened. But I looked at those pages and I thought, no, anything I say is just going to muck this up. It's all there in the pictures. I'm going to shut up and let those let those pages express the grief. And I don't have to take a hammer and hammer it and hammer it and hammer it. It's all there in the pictures. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, last minute plugs. I mean, we've talked about it throughout, but... Uh, well, you know, keep, keep your eyes open for uh, Scooby Apocalypse coming in May from D.C. Uh Adventures of Augusta Wind that's called The Last Story it will be out in August um, other things coming up and I'm hoping again hoping that this uh, TV pilot is something I'll be able to talk about and announce to the world sometime later this year um, and my workshop my, my Imagination uh, 101 writing workshop which will be this July go to my website jmdmateus.com all the information is there under workshops and if anyone ever wants to get in touch with me go. you can you know anyone who leaves a comment on my website We'll get a response. Anyone that contacts me on Twitter or Facebook will get a response. So uh, I love talking to the people uh, that read and appreciate my work. It really, it's a really a wonderful world that we live in that we can all interact this way. Um, so feel free to connect with me, contact me, and uh, that about covers it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for spending so much of your time with us today. Great. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks.